0: Loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma.
1: It totally took place in the 90s, though. (laughs) Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today.
1: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson.
0: Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Look who's talking is over. I can't believe she's getting that upset about a Vulcan. Big ears, no emotions, right? It's the most natural thing in the world. No. Yes. Uh, No. What? How could this have happened? I take it this wasn't a planned pregnancy. It's a beautiful, magical experience. St. Jerome's Hospital. Ah! John Travolta. Oh. Come on, breathe deep, breathe oh. deep. Oh. Well, try to help me, just ride. Oh.
1: Kirstie Alley. Give
0: me some drugs. Oh,
1: thank you a really lot. Now that is a little more like it. Hey, here's Mr. Hand here. Wow. And Bruce Willis as the voice of Mikey. Help. Help. Put me back in! Put me back in!
0: So you're the one that's been kicking me. The one that ate all that spicy food. Now Mikey's mommy needs his help. I'm going to get you the best daddy there is. All right, I'm on the case too.
1: But when you think like this little guy. Boy, I got to think about getting my own place. There's a lot to distract you.
0: One of those little furry things over your eyes. No, no, let me grab one. Come here. There we go. Discover with Mikey
1: the wonders of life. Fellas, listen, I got something cold and wet in my shorts down here. Guys, listen, fellas. The unexpected delights of family. Oh yeah,
0: she's gone. And the gratifying search. You know, that's breast milk. For the perfect daddy. Mikey doesn't need a father. I just thought of someone perfect for you.
1: You'll love him. Who was that clown? I want you to be my daddy. and I'll tell mommy about it. You really think you're responsible enough to be a father? Yeah, this is called driving. This ain't so tough. Mikey! 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 Well, I got this driving thing knocked. (laughs) Look who's talking. What a sweetie.
0: You must be thinking the same thing I (laughs) am. Lunch. Yeah, right back at you, babe. Mm. This is the end of our official, officially the end of our uh, 80s comedy series. It's the last movie on the public schedule. Look who's talking. Amy Heckerling.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because um, we have a member bonus episode that is uh, tied into this series that's going to be coming out at the end of the month uh, for members. And if you want to get your membership, make sure you do so that you can hear it. It is for National Lampoon's European Vacation. So with that, we will have actually looked at all of Amy Heckerling's films in the 80s. Um, Martha Coolidge has three other films this decade that we didn't end up including. But um, at some point, maybe down the road... We'll be filling those in in a member bonus episode as well.
0: This is a big movie.
1: It was. Did you see this in theaters at the time when it came Absolutely out?
0: Absolutely, I did. Yeah. Yeah, it is right in the sweet spot of where I would have been when my, you know, my it was family movie night. We'd head out to the theater. Together. Probably hit saw it at Cinema 180 and had our popcorn. Yeah, the full experience.
1: Yeah, I was trying to think about this. I'm like, this, I bet. It was either uh, me and and one of my friends, although as I was thinking about this, I'm like, I bet this was me and my friend and both of our families. Like, I bet all of us went because this was the type of movie we all would go see, you know. Uh, It just was a very, very popular movie at the time it came out. And everybody was talking about it. Everybody was watching it. So it's going to be an interesting one to talk about today. Um, as a part of this series, as kind of the end of this series, because I, of all the films, I, I think it's probably fair to say this one has aged the poorest.
0: Oh, Andy, I'm going to tell you right up front. I'm relieved to hear you say that.
1: Well, <laughs> it doesn't mean I didn't like it. It does mean I didn't enjoy it. Whereas I think you want to punch this movie in the face.
0: <laughs> Maybe not <in> the face, <laughs> neck.
1: Maybe in that that little arm growing between the legs. (laughs) How am I going to get that in my mouth? Oh, Look Who's Talking was rated PG-13 for mild sex and nudity, not to mention several action sequences featuring (laughs) sperms racing to an egg, as well as moderate profanity. Plus, there are some definite outdated derogatory comments, so be forewarned. You want to watch this movie and help us out? If you see an Apple or Amazon link to this movie in the show notes, you can click on it, which will take you right to their site where you can rent or buy the movie. And when you do this, we get a little bit in return. Win-win.
0: We've got some uh, new merch coming as we wrap up this season. We've got uh, some shirts for uh, that are they're coming along with some of these movies that we've talked about. So make sure to check out the merch store, truestory.fm. We've got shirts and stickers and mugs and masks and pillows.
1: Pillows. Everything uh, everything that we put out, we're putting out on pillows. Absolutely. And you can subscribe to all of your favorite shows from True Story FM in their own individual feeds. The True Story FM entertainment family of film podcasts, The Next Real, Trailer Rewind, The Film Board, uh, The Saturday Matinee, they all have their own feeds now. You can go to truestory.fm slash shows. You can see the full list and you can subscribe right there to each of them. We'd love to start featuring uh, many reviews
0: from you. Uh, If you have thoughts on a particular film, you know, the easiest way to do it, just use your voice memos app on your phone, voice memos, and then uh, send it to us to reviews at truestory.fm. And as soon as you watch the movie and uh, you send it to us with enough time, we'll drop it in the show and, and talk about your review. Get your voice in this very show. We'd love to hear from
1: you. Reviews at truestory.fm. And anyone who is a fan of Letterboxd, I mean, let's face it, we're big fans of Letterboxd. We talk about it all the time. We are. Uh, we have our own HQ page now. You can check that out over at letterboxcom slash the next reel. If you want to get a discount on pro or patron memberships, when you upgrade, you can use the discount code nextreel. At the checkout, or just go to the slash letterboxed. It'll give you your 20% off and it works for renewals as well.
0: Yeah, don't forget, it's time for our annual questionnaire. We leave it up and running for probably a couple of months, but um, uh, check it out at, at truestory.fm the thenextreel or any of our, our show pages. Uh, you'll see the banner across the top that says, uh, you know, uh, it says something again, to contribute by filling out this questionnaire. It takes a few minutes. We really appreciate your thoughts and would love to hear from
1: you. Hey, we need your support. We don't sell your information. We're not big on that style of production. We really are reliant on our members to kind of support the show to help us to continue to grow. We have a good membership base right now, and we're always looking at continuing to grow that. If you can support us, become a member, we would really, really appreciate it. Members get to vote on our weekly Saturday
0: matinee polls to choose which list topic based on the movie we're talking about this week that we actually build watch lists for you in that show. And you get to vote if you're a member. You get to vote and tell us what to talk about. Uh, If you're already a member, you could have voted on the list topic
1: for this very movie, Look Who's Talking, already. Members also get early access to every episode that we release. And we have a lot of member bonus episodes as well we're doing monthly member bonus episodes that are filling in gaps of previous series there's the monthly monthly flick chart re-ranking episode we're also doing a new members only episode at the end of each series called the retake where we are evaluating our thoughts of the entire series plus we're doing our flick chart ranking for that particular series in that episode
0: members also get to vote on what we'll be talking about for these member bonus episodes so if there's a movie you'd like to to uh, have us give a shout out to uh and pull apart in one of these member episodes you can let us know that way
1: but wait there's more members can also watch the live streams as we record our shows and can even access the live streams from previous shows anytime they want Members get extra super secret members-only channels in Discord. And now members also get stickers. That's right. We will be mailing all of our members a couple stickers from our merch store. Just another way to say thank you for all of your support.
0: Best of all, you don't have to listen to any of this ever again. You get your very own super secret member, personal, individualized, bespoke podcast feed that you can use to subscribe in one of many podcast apps of your choice. And uh, you can get all of our member bonus episodes and all of our public content with no ads, none of this
1: poppycock in there. We cut it all out. Cut out the poppycock. Just head to truestory.fm slash TNR membership to learn more about the membership tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 per month or $55 per year. Meet Zinnia. You are being very polite to someone who is attempting to kill us. Her wife, Saffron. You can plan all you want, but what matters is
0: what you do when your plan falls apart. And their best friend, Goldie. Glad we didn't miss all the fun. Swords in hand, they defend their city from the worst of humanity. I am Lord Buxton Blue. Vicious Swar. The Fraconian
1: rake,
0: Herr Hagen.
1: Equity Electric.
0: Follow their adventures on the Swashbuckling Ladies Debate Society audio drama podcast, available now at TrueStory.fm/slash/swashbuckling. Look who's talking!
1: It's you. That's that's who's talking. Andy, I sorry, I was waiting. For that I went joke.
0: in <laughs> at, uh, since you watched the movie, or since we decided to put it in a series, or
1: exactly, for the last ten yeah. years. I'm gonna I'm gonna use this one day. It's gonna be great. <laughs> The <laughs> people will love it. <laughs> I already heard uh, them clamoring for more. Uh, <laughs> I, Look who's um, talking now.
0: <laughs> I I didn't I didn't love it. I thought I was gonna love it. My memory said, Pete, you're gonna love it. It's gonna be the it's gonna be the crowning triumph of the series. And for me, the crowning triumph so far is yeah, a movie ago uh, with real genius. This this movie I didn't love it. There are things I loved a lot about it. Um, But the overall experience, starting from the sperm chasing the egg, it just did not land. It didn't land. It it I never I didn't find myself like laughing adorably. I didn't find Bruce Willis funny. It was just weird. It just didn't hold up. And I'm trying to figure out and why I need your help. Why is that?
1: I mean, I, I can't speak to some of that, but I, I think that there are elements of the movie that likely that now you're just not connecting to. I mean, I, I know you kind of, in general, aren't as huge a fan of romantic comedy anyway. So I think that there's certainly an element of that that is is probably affecting how you feel about this particular film. As far as the the stuff from the era, it's interesting because this did come out at a time when... Weirdly, there were a lot of baby movies, three men and a baby. She's having a baby, uh, you know, 87, 88. This was 89. Diane Keaton's baby boom was 1987. So that was like fitting into not only was it about babies, but it was about single mothers dealing with uh, children like we have here in this particular film. A lot of baby stuff going on. I found this quote online. It was an era when making the choice to enter single motherhood was quite controversial, and the film tackled the issue with grace and humor even before Dan Quayle called out Murphy Brown. Let's not forget about all of that. <laughs> it also, oh, that happened was such a mess right around this time. And so I think that this film struck at a time when this whole idea of a woman uh, doing artificial insemination to, or quote, artificial insemination, uh since it wasn't, uh it, it certainly fit the era as, as she's trying to kind of raise a child on her own, even though largely it is a romantic comedy. And to that end, I think... You know, Amy Heckerling, as she crafted the script, was doing something different that we weren't seeing in a lot of romantic comedies by having a voice of this baby being so uh, kind of relevant and such a key part of the story. As, you know, I guess largely he's, you know, has opinions about who her mother should date. But I think that I I don't know, I, I guess I find it interesting that there are elements I mean, because there, there are certainly dated elements within this film, the way that some of the languages as far as, you know, jokes about, um, you know, people's sexuality, like assuming that she is a lesbian just because she was artificially inseminated. Like there were things like that that didn't stick. And yeah. And the, how derogatory it sounded the way oh, he yeah.
0: delivered that line. What are you, a lesbo? Like, yeah. like it just I that was nails on a chalkboard. And and it surprised me because I haven't heard the word used that way in so long that it it surprised me at just how reactive
1: it was. So of the era. And, yeah. you know, there are other things that are kind of tossed out casually like that throughout the film that, you know, I I don't know. It, it struck me a little sideways at times that, you know, oh, yeah, this is how people talked. And it was pretty crass and obnoxious. And, um, but it was just, you know, the way that people would see particular things and just call it out. And it's just, you know, I don't know. It didn't, that didn't fly for me. I actually really enjoy the fact that Amy Heckerling decided to start the film off with a whole bunch of sperm entering (laughs) entering the birth canal on their journey to go find the egg. Like that was like, wow. Okay. That's not something you see that often in a film and actually starting a film that way i thought was actually pretty uh a, a fairly interesting and uh you know surprising thing so i found that to be one of the strengths of the film
0: i found that bit frustrating only when it became uh a notable like baby and his eyes like Start working around. I'm like, this doesn't hold up. This is a weird telepathic Bruce Willis monster movie and <laughs> it does not fly. It is a bad puppet. And, uh, I, I'm, I know, you know, things have changed and this is where we were at the time, but the sperm, I, I'm, it was fine. It was fine. I just didn't find it as, as sort of bravely adorable as it sounds like you did. And, and let me just say to your point specifically about baby movies, when we started talking about doing this series, I legit had Three Men and a Baby in my head for like a month before I realized what movie we were actually watching. So that may have something to do with it. When Tom Selleck did not show up in this movie, I was still just a
1: little bit disappointed. Or the ghost behind the curtain. Right.
0: <laughs> right. You know, it, it's fascinating. I um, The the stuff that I didn't like, I didn't like the whole conceit of the baby talking. I I didn't find any of that particularly funny. Or charming. What I liked, weirdly, and I agree with your point, I sometimes struggle with romantic comedies, was the romantic comedy part. Once we got over the fact, and one of the more dated elements for me is the fact that, you know, as much as we like the fact that Kirstie Alley is going out on her own and bravely being a single mom and choosing to do that, she does so couched in a lie uh, that there is so much shame wrapped up in this movie, where she's so terrified to tell the truth of the fact that she got Pregnant this way and has to lie about it to, in order to make it normal. Um, I, I struggled with that. I thought that was one of the super dated elements. Once I get past that, I really enjoy their relationship together. John Travolta is a a, a real charmer in this movie. I think he's a, a, a huge win uh, for the cast, and his performance is so likable and so fun and genuine, and it's the high. Every time he is on screen with the child, it's an incredible high point of demonstrating this sort of male role model relationship and having fun with children, not just just making them um, pacifying them. And I think that was uh, that's a, a real treat in in this movie.
1: To that end, I actually really liked Kirstie Alley. I liked the pair of them as this couple. Like, I I bought into everything with the romance between them. Really, I mean, let's say... The friendship that it starts with. I mean, we have at least well over a year's worth of friendship of these two before it actually evolves into anything else. And I actually really liked that. I like that they took their time with this relationship as it, as it developed. Granted, I think largely it was to allow for the child to get to a place where it wasn't just a baby they were working with. But still, I ended up enjoying that the way that it kind of took its time to kind of develop this into a relationship. I, I really liked all of that stuff. As for your point about that it was a little dated as far as her making this kind of uh, you know shamed choice to not talk about the fact that uh George Siegel's character uh had actually impregnated her with this affair that they were having I actually didn't have an issue with that I ended up kind of buying into all of that, because, again, it, it certainly is of its time of this woman who, you know, she I mean, she is having an affair. She is the other woman. He is a married man. And so she kind of opts to, you know what, I'm going to just say I I, I want to keep this baby. I'm not going to have an abortion. And I'm just going to say I was artificially inseminated just so I don't have to deal with any of that. And I'm going to move on. And I actually found it to be, uh, you know, a fairly a, a good believable kind of way that she approached that. She she wasn't hitting him up for uh well, I I don't want to say this and, and sound like it's coming out the wrong way. You know, she didn't feel the need to say, hey, I want support. I mean, let's let's be real. He was a terrible person who did not support this child at all. But she kind of said, you know what, I'm I'm done with you. I'm gonna move forward and I'm gonna just have this baby raise it. And I'm going to be a fantastic mother. I really enjoyed the way all of that played out. There were those elements about her still having this thing for him and and him, I mean, he was just a terrible person in general. But I really I appreciated that she said, "You know what? I'm okay. I can do this on my own." And she was. And I found that to be a, a sign of strength. And it's interesting because it, it did come out at a time where, obviously, her parents were saying, you need a man in your life, all, like people were saying, you know, the baby needs a father and all this sort of stuff. And that, to me, I think might be a dated element of kind of the era, the 80s, the, you know, almost the 90s, when it's like you got to have the you got to have the two parents in in this child's life or it's going to not be OK. And I think we're kind of past that now. But I I don't know, to that end, I just really appreciated that it felt like she was capable of doing this on her own.
0: Well, just fantasize with me for a minute, though. Let's take the whole shame-based, I've got to lie about artificial insemination out of the picture. What if she had just come out and say, you know what, I got pregnant, it was an accident, but I'm gonna do it anyway. The same conversations happen with her parents, you gotta have a man, the same conversations happen everywhere, the same fight with Travolta and uh, Siegel in the hallway, which was delightful uh, and rewarding for me. I love just (laughs) watching them scuffle. all of the same stuff happens, and she gets to be more empowered by making a conscious choice, right? I, I feel like that would have been a stronger position. Um, and and so I, I didn't even, like, if I try to put myself back into the empathetic um, youth, uh, 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 you know, watching this movie the first time, I just feel like that would have been a, a stronger mechanic than
1: this whole lie around art. I just think it was... Dumb. Well, either way, it's it's just not it's it's leaving information out. Like because I cause if she had done that, then there would have been a lot of questions about who's the father. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Like she she would never have yeah. been telling people. I honestly don't think it changes the story much one way or the other. It doesn't. Uh, I, I think that it would be pretty much the same thing. And so I I, I think I'd be okay. But it but it changes the character.
0: Uh, I, I think it you changes know, the character.
1: Look at that, what we just did.
0: Look who's talking to.
1: Um, right. I don't think right. I don't think it does much for me in either direction. I think it would pretty much leave for her. It would put her in the same place where she's like, you know what, I'm going to raise this baby on my own. It doesn't matter. Like, that's kind of what she's saying. You know, it just doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. Only insofar
0: as she has to live with some sort of shame. That's the dated part. I think we need, I think the movie is better if it's, if the shame part is excised.
1: What's, uh, what's the
0: shame? That she feels she can't legitimately, like she couldn't accidentally get pregnant. It happens, right? Like she had to lie about giving herself more agency that she chose to go do this when she didn't. She's lying about it. And I understand like as a character perspective that, um, you know, maybe there would be some of that in there. But I actually think it's a better movie if she's able to stand up and say, you know what? It happened. We're not going to talk about it. I, we don't need this this artificial insemination mechanic to make the joke work.
1: I guess I, I I mean, I guess I can see your point, but I don't have any issues with it. I think yeah. that it's I, I don't think it's as grand a problem as well. And, that, and I don't think it's a dated problem. I, I, I don't think it changes the story whenever it would have come out. I don't think that is a mechanic that says oh this is firmly planted in the late well 80s. i
0: i don't i think if you were to remake the movie that would be an element that would be easy to excise and and i don't i just don't think it would be a natural thing to come up with right now like if you're rewriting the movie like this like i just it feels for the character silly but i, I you know i all of this is you know just saying like let's get us into her as a mother and i do like her i i i like Christy Alley in this part. I think she's funny and charming. And uh I I think that um yeah, I think it's I, I think she
1: and Travolta work really well together. And that's that's a win. Yeah, it's and it's an interesting romantic comedy because there is a lot of fantastical things happening in this film. And we've already talked about kind of the fact that Mikey, this young Sperm slash fetus slash newborn slash one year old slash I don't know how old he is by the end. He's he's walking around. He's like running running around in the middle of the streets. Yeah. So so uh, but it's all like this child who we're listening to him speak throughout the duration of the film, like in his head. And then also we have some incredibly fantastical dream sequences uh, that Kirstie Alley has over the course of the film, whether it's, you know, kind of a, a, a nightmare from her parents about the idea of the ticking clock. And, and you know, she's she's running out of time and that whole thing, or whether it's like the the horrors of this man that she's been screwing around with and watching his head explode uh which was kind of fun to see albert's head explode Mm -hmm. or if it's if it's the fantasies that she has about now this is where it does like the whole idea of i guess the fears of the unknown when it comes to being in relationships like you know i want the perfect dad for my child but in the reality it's like you never can choose that you just kind of you know Marry who you love and hope that it all works out for the best. And But that's what I enjoyed about these fantasies, because you have these fantasies that she creates about all these different men that she's dating and the future of where they're going to go. And in every case, it was a nightmare, including James, which I, I thought was actually fairly interesting that her life is, you know, the 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 fear of finding a perfect father is driving her to this, these, you know, nightmarish fantasies that, you know, likely none of which will come true, but it just puts her into this place of fear. But it's a really interesting element that you don't see often in these kind of this idea of the romantic comedy where you have this huge fantastical element. And I actually felt like, you know, that's actually an interesting thing that Amy Heckerling is putting into this particular, uh, in this particular film what did you think about kind which, of this? which
0: part the fact that she's doing the fantastical elements or yeah that
1: she's right that she's inserting such fantastical the dreams the talking baby all of this stuff into what otherwise is a fairly a staid Genre: the whole idea of a romantic comedy, yeah, yeah, romantic comedy, new mom,
0: kind of fish out of water stuff. No, I, I, th- I absolutely agree, and I think the the fantastic, particularly the the ticking clock, right? The the whole metaphor of uh, of the ticking clock, both for for her as a character and weirdly in hindsight for Kirstie Alley, is I think an an interesting component to the film, and and I think it it, it elevates the experience of of watching the movie uh, beyond just what it is, right? It, it actually gives us a chance to see a little bit more depth than just, oh my gosh, where's the car seat now? Like, I need to find parental X unit right now, some tool to solve some baby problem. Because otherwise, I, I think sometimes it's hard to get into characters' heads in movies like this because the experience of being a parent is so frenetic with kids of this age. And... Uh, so it's it's all just montages of things like her putting coffee in the bottle and that can get tiresome pretty quickly. So building in these these sort of fantasy elements, I think, elevate the experience of watching the movie. I liked it a lot. Big in
1: montages. Wow. There were quite a few so montages that we montages. had in here. And I, I hit a point where I was like, should Amy Heckerley slow down on the number of montages we're having here? But then I was also it was like, practically like, Rocky but, five. Like, <laughs> come on. But I kept saying then like. But she keeps picking such good music to play the montages <laughs> with maybe it's okay <laughs> yeah no I, I I do
0: agree with you um it it starts feeling a little bit like the easy way out like how but you made the point earlier like we need the montages to move the baby through time if yeah, for no other reason like we yeah. have to age this baby and the only way you do that is either a hard cut. Uh, which can be jarring or a montage
1: of awkward parenting stuff. Yeah, no, I think it works. Uh, You know, what did you think about how we get there's it's kind of a an interesting kind of forced element that Heckerling introduces in the script to kind of get Travolta and and Allie together like initially he's just the cab driver he happens to be the one who she hops into his cab he takes her to the hospital she leaves and then he gets um, i don't know there's there's another kind of gag trope that we have here the person who brought you to the hospital is mistaken to be the father thrown into scrubs and is in there in the delivery in the delivery room when you're having the baby it's like "Eh, okay I'll, i'll kind of go along with it but then she leaves her purse in the car he brings it back and then it's this whole idea that he needs residency in the in the city. He's trying to find a nursing home, basically, for his grandpa. And so he is secretly having mail sent to her place and is caught as he's trying to pull out some letters from her mailbox that has the information that he needs. That's how he gets kind of kept in her life. And... Um, I mean, it's an interesting element because obviously we get to meet Grandpa, which becomes an important figure later in the film. Does that structure work for you as far as how Heckerlin kind of crafted this to kind of keep these two together? Keep these two together. You've just skipped past my rant about getting these two together. You
0: introduced them. You must let me rant. I found the cab ride so weird. Like, that's (laughs) the part of Travolta in this thing that I just find jarring and strange. Like, the fantastical nature of the fact that they would build this, that their relationship would start. Uh, at the point of like bickering old couple, like she's hammering at him and he's like, hold on, let me get you. How does he know to go from zero to a hundred like so fast? There's no sense that he's going to stop and say, wait a minute, we should maybe call an ambulance. Wait a minute. I mean, I know rom-coms have to do this kind of stuff, but I found it absurd and I it it was a, a moment I had to get over. I didn't need a Midtown car chase. In, to, to get us into this character space. I think it was a weird way to have them meet. I did not like it. Now, I will say for the record, having him be a cab driver ends up working really well for the rest of the film, right? Sure. Um, I just think the cab introduction of going to this frenetic car chase was too much it was too much.
1: Well, it's played for laughs because the whole idea of, oh my God, she's going to give birth in the back of my cab. And I'm, I'm horrified by that. I'm going to do everything I can to get her to the hospital as fast as possible. I mean, it's kind of a silly thing. You know, it, it, you know, it's a little tough to swallow. Plus it, it puts them into a position where, you know, the car chase of all Uh, it's the the tropiest drive through the city where you've got to hop onto the sidewalk and you've got to crash through something that people are pushing across the way you've got to cut through construction and you've got to kind of like weave around the construction vehicles and meanwhile all the people are running behind you hey get out of here you know that whole thing it's all very tropey um you know so it felt a lot of car
0: damage so many cars hitting each other
1: it was one of those things it was one of those (laughs) tropey chases or races. I really it's not a chase. It's just a race through the city in rush hour that just felt uh, very much kind of like, you know, I've seen this before. I probably loved it at the time because it injects some energy in there in their meat cute. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, in the end, like as I watch it now, I was like, yeah, all right. This is about what I uh, what I would have expected at the time, I suppose.
0: Now, to your point of keeping them together. That brings us to Abe Vigoda. Uh, uh Grandpa, where are his parents?
1: Uh, what? Yeah, right. And is he really, I swear, Abe Vigoda must really have these dentures, because it when he takes them out, he looks like a person with, with no yeah. teeth. Like, it genuine. Yeah. I was like, I think he's genuinely taking his real teeth out. I think he's out. taking
0: his real teeth out.
1: Wow. It's just like, what's his name in,
0: uh, in The Hangover, when he takes his tooth out and he actually doesn't have that tooth yeah, that's right that's the kind of tooth gimmick that i really appreciate in movies that's authenticity <laughs> um i i feel like it is very strange like their whole relationship of him like doing the whole male thing it it feels on the verge of like th- the level of weird rom-com manipulation in like you've got mail which i i really just don't care for
1: yeah that's the worst of them all that's,
0: it's the worst of them but this is like on a spectrum that exists where both of those movies are on the same line like it's just like if he wasn't so cute uh if he wasn't the cute cab driver like it just wouldn't i just don't think it would play as well as travolta is able to play it it's fine Because it leads us to what I think is actually a super rewarding payoff, where she responds as Travolta's wife to take care of a problem in the thing at the end with Abe Vigoda, which I really like. I really do. It is is such a warm feeling. She is so authentic. There's no question that she's going to do the right thing. And that was the right thing for the movie, right? I just... I really loved the way that final sequence pays off. And so that whole line of whatever it takes to keep Travolta in her life in order to pay off there, I'm willing to accept an awful lot of magical, magical movie making.
1: I I don't feel it's on that same spectrum as the manipulation in You've Got Mail because I feel like, yes, he is essentially committing a crime by having mail sent to her place. And she calls him out on it. Yeah. But she, but, and and really it's, it's because she ends up meeting grandpa and ends up kind of that whole thing that she's like, all right, you know what? It's fine. And, and so I felt like, yes, he should have just asked her. That would have been a smarter way to do it. Yeah, But I didn't feel it was as, uh, you know, manipulative to create a relationship essentially as, as it was in, in you've got mail.
0: Yes. And you know what? To that point, their relationship actually in this movie, one of the things I like about it, feels very natural to me. It feels like they evolved together. And that is something that you don't get a lot in these kinds of movies. Anytime there's that sort of manipulation, to your point, it is manipulation to make the relationship happen. That is not the case in Look Who's Talking, and I think it's better for it.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting though, because yeah, they, they evolve this friendship and, and he's the babysitter. He's taking care of Mikey or he's, you know, one of many people who she kind of has taken care of Mikey. I shouldn't say many, one of two people that she has yeah, taken right. care of Mikey. So many. Um, but also I feel like he does start kind of growing some romantic interest in her. And it's interesting that it, it, it comes out with this one particular date who her parents set her up with just because he's an accountant. And, the, you know, there's there's funny bits in here, I will say, about her parents, the fact that they're both account- accountants. And you have this gag where she's at her parents' Olympia Dukakis is her mom. And and she's asking her mom, like, you know, just trying to figure out this whole relationship thing. And she's like, well, we're both accountants. We both, you know, we both connected. and And dad is reading the Journal of Accountants. And he is just cracking up on the <laughs> patio as he reads this. I thought that was so funny. Just like such a silly little joke about the fact that dad is such a geek about accounting that reading this journal is like his pleasure reading that he's just laughing at. So but anyway, she they they set her up on an accountant or a date with an accountant because, you know, maybe you'll like somebody who likes what you like, just like us. And But it was an interesting date because this is the one date that she goes on where John Travolta really, I don't know, I don't know if he's just doing it for fun or genuinely seems threatened, but he kind of spins this whole thing about the fact that she's a liberated woman and she doesn't like... She gets upset when dates pay for her and all this sort of stuff to basically kind of um, ruin the date is what he is kind of Super doing. Super low key manipulation.
0: Like his delivery yeah. is such a soft sell that it's it's more subversive maybe than it should be. <laughs> Just watching a game here. Yeah, I got money on this game. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I understand you're an accountant.
1: Yeah, I'm a CPA.
0: Oh, that's great. You and Molly get along great. She's a she's a, a CPA. You
1: know? No, I know. Her mom yeah. told me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's got to be tough, you know, being a mom and a CPA. I don't know. But Molly, she's a tough girl. What do you mean tough? Well, first of all, she hates it when guys like open doors for her or try to pick up the tab or pay for things. Really pisses her off.
1: Really? She liberated, huh? Liberated? Come on. Guy babysitter? Yeah, and the, but why is he doing it here? Like, why did, does he really feel threatened by this guy? Like, I mean, especially yeah. because he just had Mikey pull his toupee off, right? Yeah. Like, where's the threat? <laughs> yeah, right. I, I am, I am right with you because it,
0: it, it is delivered in such a way that you might actually think, hey, I think he genuinely believes these things about her. And, and he probably does. Like, I, I don't want to, you know miss that like i think he thinks she is a a strong and liberated woman and she's made a lot of strong choices is he really manipulating her around or manipulating him around this idea of you know paying the bill and it does feel in their dinner sequence that she kind of pays the bill without a whole lot of show there are a couple of cuts down to the bill and cuts to him cut down to the bill but not a lot it, like it doesn't oversell the point that she's just you know that she's really making a sacrifice to pay it just feels very low-key
1: yeah it's just done as a strange gag like she's gonna pay the bill she has to open her own doors she has to buy the movie tickets like all of these things that it kind of sets it up to be just to say oh because then he has the line oh your, your babysitter gave me all the inside scoop yeah all this sort of stuff and you know I don't know. The date wasn't going to end. I mean, he's like, you know, wanting a kiss. He wants to come up and all that sort of stuff. And she clearly wasn't going to have it anyway. So I just don't know. Like, you know, it just, this was, a date that felt very scripted. It felt like we've got to have some conflict injected into this particular date for some reason. Like it just, it was weird to me. I mean, you know, it played okay. I just never felt any threat by this guy. And if they were going to actually make it a threat, it should have been a very handsome guy that she could have actually kind of fallen for if it wasn't for these things that, that, you know, he wasn't treating her well or something.
0: And that would have been funny, ironic, too, and not in a hat on a hat way, like having a super handsome guy show up and make him an accountant would have been super funny to watch Travolta attempt to manipulate that and to give her the chance to have the turn that says, even though you're incredibly handsome, even though you're charming and you're in my field, the fact that you made me pay gives me the opportunity to use the punchline and now I'm broke and close the door right? Like, that. That's, that's just better. Like, smarter comedy. I recognize armchairing a director in a podcast is rude. And yet, it just feels like a low-hanging fruit to me in hindsight 20 years later.
1: Yeah. Well, clearly, the whole thing was written just for laughs. Pulling a toupee off laughs. I mean, you can see why it was written the way it was. And yeah. I mean, it, those are slap the slap things stick. that slap we stick. probably laughed at a lot in, when we saw it in theaters. The movie was made for us then.
0: Yeah, and that's why I, I even wrote up in my review. I don't think this movie is made for me now, right? Like this movie was was not made for me now, so it, it's it's fine. Can we talk
1: a little bit more about George Segal and their relationship? George Segal was in a film in the seventies called A Touch of Class. He plays uh, a man who is sneaking off with his lover from uh, from London they're sneaking down to Spain to have a tryst. And it just, like, the whole thing just felt like, ugh, like, I don't know. It it felt like it, this was the same George Segal that we had in that film, which was 16 years earlier than we have here. And I'm like, why is this, is this a thing that George Segal was doing a lot with his career of doing these sorts of films where it was like, you know, the, just kind of the, involved in an affair and i mean i don't know it just it was so strange to me like i i didn't care for that film i mean people loved it at the time it was nominated for uh for best picture which is strange to me but it was and it was a film about a guy having an affair basically and and kind of the end of the affair and here you have him kind of in that same role and i just like gosh why is this a thing with with george siegel i i don't care for his character kind of like this kind of freewheeling guy who's just, I mean, he's just a selfish person who just can't decide. I mean, he's cheating on his wife. He has a family with kids. He's, uh, when she gets pregnant, he starts another relationship with another woman. And as he says, he's just, he's selfish. And I don't know. I just struggled with him. Albert, What's going on? Molly, I've fallen in love. Beth knows all about it I'm I'm gonna live with Melissa I don't know if it'll last or what It it just happened and I had to act on
0: it Albert, how can this be? And why didn't you say anything to me about it?
1: I I didn't want to upset you When you were so close to the end of your pregnancy I
0: don't believe this is happening
1: Molly, I know this sounds awful But I'm going through a selfish phase right now Selfish phase? I admit the timing is bad a selfish face. It's not like I planned on it. It just happened. A selfish face, Albert, you dickin' stupid. Dick. Molly hate Molly. Hey, hey,
0: I hate that. Uh I, I'm going through a selfish phase. Now, was it of the era? Absolutely it was, right? And there is a piece of the of the George Segal angle that that I understand and I understand what it represents. The problem I have is that I don't believe, and maybe this is a Kirstie Alley thing, I don't always believe her attraction to him. And I think it's because it's always presented as a kind of relationship mania. Like, it is over-the-top sort of um, comedy in the way she presents her, her attraction to him and the way she obsesses over him and it's not very real. It's not very authentic. Every time we go to them, to the two of them together, it it seems to exist outside of the movie or in a different movie. And I don't I don't find it as believable. And so by the time they have this confrontation, when Kirstie Alley and her friend uh, see you know Siegel and his decorator in the cloth in the the clothing store, uh, hooking up uh, in the changing room kind of like of course this was going to happen and then we get the confrontation out on the street and i find it frustrating and external to the movie that i'm coming to like elsewhere
1: i mean yeah i i i I struggle calling it dated because i feel like it is yeah, certainly that's not the right word I it agree. certainly is something that I think happens any decade with anyone who's in a relationship who decides to have an affair it's you know it is a selfish it thing is a to selfish space <laughs> and I think I think that it's always going to be that way and I think that there will always be these people who can't stop being drawn to somebody even when they know that they shouldn't be and wh- whoever they happen to be and in this particular case, Yeah, I, you know, I kind of buy that she has this attraction to him that she's, she, she knows, I mean, right from the beginning of the film, she's done, she wants to be out of this, but just the way that he starts talking and touching her, she just can't stop herself, hence the, uh, the, the sperm riding through uh, the birth canal on the way to the egg. It's just, it's part of that whole thing. And so, you know, I, I, I buy into him being selfish and and all of this sort of stuff. It's just, I don't know. It, it's, it is certainly a, an element of stories that we've seen a lot. And I feel like maybe it was just that by this point, or certainly by now, looking back on it at this particular point, I just feel like I've seen this story play out so many times. You kind of get into your head, like, Can't they see what I see, the fact that this isn't going to work, that they just need to walk away from this? And it it can be very frustrating in these situations. And I guess in the context of this particular story, we needed her to be pregnant. It needed to be a situation where she didn't want to talk about the guy. And we needed to eventually set him up where it's clear he doesn't want to have a kid around. Like when when she goes and takes Mikey to his office and Mikey wants to play with his little Kachina dolls and, uh, you know, she's he's upset that she put something on the desk, whatever it is, like all these sorts of things. Like he's clearly just not in this place anymore. And But we've known it all along. It just took her, I don't know, some might say too long to kind of come to terms with that.
0: Well, I I think what we're I, I sort of talking around is his the archetype of him as the conquering hero of his own story. Right. He makes such a big deal about that desk. He makes such a big deal about all of the the portraits, the, the, <laughs> the authentic Navajo landscape <laughs> that they're putting in. And I just I find it. I found that part really funny. And uh, obviously now we learn that he also, he acquires things the same way that he acquires women and relationships. That's a stereotype that we, that we know and love. Um, and not really love. That was weird. Um, <laughs> but I think my problem is maybe it's not the problem. I don't have a problem with Kirstie Alley at all. I have a problem that I don't buy George Siegel as that guy. Yeah. Like I, he is not a conquering hero type to me. And so their relationship is is sort of fingernails on a
1: chalkboard. Uh well, I I think that there's something to that. And you know, again, it's the whole idea of the affair and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, I mean, he was born in 1934. She was born in 1951. There's definitely an age gap between the two of them. Would it have made more sense if they had been closer in age for us to really buy into this whole idea of the affair and he's leaving his wife? All that sort of stuff. Yes, I would have bought into it more if it wasn't George Siegel. I just I think for me, I ended up feeling like. They decided, let's put George Siegel in this because he's great at playing this cad sort of character. Like, I just felt like they went with that because of who George Siegel is and what he's played. And I think they could have made it better if it was something, if it was somebody just like we were talking about with the date. If it was somebody that we actually thought, you know what? If he does leave his wife, I would totally see the two of them living happily together.
0: Yeah. Christopher Plummer. (laughs) Somebody with a little more class. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, like, he's a, some, yeah, somebody younger. So sure.
0: obviously not class like it does not have that sort of class that it's just hard to believe. But you're in and, and that's what makes it sort of a slapstick relationship. I mean, I need somebody classier.
1: Now, would you have uh, liked seeing Gina Davis in the role? She was originally considered for the role of Molly, but she turned it down because. She couldn't handle doing another movie with a birth cef- sequence since she had just done the one in The Fly a few years before, which, let's say, was a little bit more traumatic. <laughs> Although she would do one later in Angie a few years, years down the road. That's but, pretty good. That's pretty I good.
0: I, of course, I can see her in this part, and I think she, you know, especially on the heels of just watching Thelma and Louise, I think she brings some of that uh, innocence, that sort of naivety to the to to this character i think she
1: could have she could have totally played it what's interesting is travolta he was at a point in his career where he had had so many box office flops he was kind of in the doghouse and people weren't up on on casting him and you know a lot of people say pulp fiction is the thing that actually kind of got him back out of that but it actually was this film heckerling uh, when they brought him on it was actually written for a darker character she rewrote the part Added all the dancing bits, of course, if you're going to cast Travolta, you want to have him dancing. Mm -hmm. They actually had pushed for John Stamos. The the studio had pushed for John Stamos because they thought he would be a great fit. He couldn't get out of his full house contract, so it wasn't him. They also pushed for Michael Keaton, Mel Gibson, Jeff Goldblum, which would have been interesting if it had been Gina Davis. And Griffin Dunn, I'm waiting for you to say your thing that you're always going to say, Griffin Dunn. Well,
0: Andy Griffin Dunn and I uh, share the same alma mater.
1: (laughs) Hey, there you go. Um, but of course, uh, Travolta ended up being the one who's cast. And Travolta, and I think this speaks to why we like him so much in the film. He says, of all the roles that he's played, it's the character in this film that is most like his real personality. Yeah, I buy that. Absolutely. It felt effortless. And I think why we buy the two of them together is because they really kind of fell in love on set. They didn't nothing consummated or anything. But Ali said he was the love of her life. Later, years later, she said uh, it took years for her to not look at him as a romantic interest. Um, But they really did have chemistry on set that uh, Heckerling used to her advantage, I think, because I, I just I really enjoy these two people on screen together.
0: As long as we're casting Bruce
1: Willis, I've already I'm already on the record as saying part of the
0: reason I don't like this movie is because I didn't truck with the entire conceit of the talking baby. And that is a limiting factor in how much you're going to like this movie, because it's kind of about that. It's in it's on the tin. Um, I think Bruce Willis is is a fine voiceover artist. I, I like his voice. It has a lot of character. I'm a big fan of Over the Hedge. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. So I, I think he's great at at this stuff. And honestly, I can't in my head hear another actor doing this part, except for maybe John Candy, apparently also under
1: consideration. Yeah, Robin Williams was actually the one they considered the most for it, but his agent wanted too much money. It was actually he wanted double the production budget for the film, which would have been a lot. Um, but they also considered Chevy Chase, which you know Link had just worked with him on National Lampoon's European vacation. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Steve Martin, John Candy, all of them were busy doing other projects. And so uh, Bruce Willis came on board, which is interesting because of them. Well, I guess it was during his moonlighting days. And so I can see them using that kind of comedy element and bringing it into the film because otherwise I wouldn't say... You know he was a, a a comedic person, especially after Die Hard.
0: Yeah, I I don't think he was necessarily comedic, but you can certainly hear the character work in Die Hard. Right? He's got he's got a, a wide
1: range in his tone. Um, the baby Jason Shaw. Well, I shouldn't say the baby. The the toddler. The young. The the oldest version we see of mm-hmm. of Mikey was Jason Schaller. Uh, this was his only film role. He was in neither sequel, and he never acted again. That being said, he's very tall, six foot two. He's got kids of his own, and he actually works down at Walt Disney World. He's a singer, actor, dancer. Pops in TV ads from time to time, but but largely is just you know just a normal person. He's a normal person. Normal.
0: Well, I, he was he was a fine, adorable uh, kid for this movie. I think he was
1: he was great. You know, it's funny. I just want to talk about this whole idea of Bruce Willis as his voice, as Schaller's voice uh, for such a portion of the film. I really don't have an issue with Bruce Willis as the voice of Mikey. Like, that works for me, except for, and this is when I start struggling with it. It's when oh, it's good. used for actual conversation, like when they're getting the the child, and this happens when, when he's hanging out with other babies too, like when they're all kind of together, when the director and the team are clearly trying to get the child to actually say something and you see their mouths moving, but you don't actually hear anything because instead you hear Bruce Willis saying, hey, right back at you, babe, or whatever, you know, but you see his mouth like moving and is he saying or whatever, you know, it's just that's when it strikes me weird. It's not just his head thinking it's actual like now infant communication and that that's when it's a little, uh it works less for me. Hey, Mikey! Hey,
0: Sarah, hey! How you doing? Hey, come over here, man. I want to talk
1: to you. Oh, Where are you going? I'm on the run. gotta go. Yeah, right back at you, babe. Good to see you. I'm Mikey. Oh, oh, is that a new hat or is it time to change the bandage?
0: The playground scene when they're talking to each other, the scenes on the streets uh, where the, the, the strollers are passing each other and they're having these conversations, shaking hands. I find that all just I just don't I don't find it funny. And that, I, I think, is the real pinnacle of where the stuff doesn't work for me. Even though it doesn't work throughout the entirety of it, but maybe that's the because that's the ultimate end game of the joke is having these kids telepathically communicate in other adult voices.
1: And let's be honest, I mean this, I I don't know if we could say that this really kind of started that whole thing, but I, no. I think I think at the time it worked really well, but now we've seen. A lot of children doing this exact same thing. Babies, infants. We've seen animals doing the same thing. I mean, you know, the Cats and Dogs franchise relies Baby on geniuses. Baby geniuses. Yeah. It's a whole thing. And, uh, you know, I will say we we weren't at a point where we had digital mouth manipulation thank god otherwise (laughs) yeah we would have had it but i I think it's still you know it plays it's okay i i don't have an issue with it because i I look at it you know there's a film from 1989 i i enjoy that they were early in the whole idea of this kind of talking baby angle and i i don't have too many problems with it
0: i do like the idea that they did change the voice for international release i think that's a nice touch different actors
1: not just different actors because often they'll just cast you know whoever but they actually cast very popular people and that's i think what is the difference in in that is when it would go over to spain and actually heckerling says travolta came up with this idea uh, that when it would go over to spain they'd get like a famous spanish celebrity to do the voice of mikey or italian and you know whatever and and that was kind of it created a different appeal for it which is kind of fun but to that end I did want to bring up and it's it's not a huge thing, but we do have a cameo voice at the very end of this film when Mikey's sister is born. It is Joan Rivers who is born as Julie. And uh even though she's uncredited, her, her pseudonym is Baby Guess is is what she is born or what she's credited as. But it's clearly Joan Rivers and she has her catchphrase, can we talk at the very end of the film. It's cute in the vein of cameo voices. You know, I think it's kind of fun that they go that route. It's odd to me, I, I guess, looking at it, that they don't go that route or they don't bring her back for the sequel.
0: That is weird, especially that they end up with, who was it, Roseanne?
1: Roseanne. Barr? Does, the, does, does, Julie, does yeah. the voice
0: in the sequel? That yeah. was, uh, that is an interesting, I, I guess that's an interesting parallel. When I think about their voices, I, I can hear how one might transpose those two yeah just yeah. very different performers right 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 interesting so heckerling just got pregnant
1: and really wanted to do some inner work she had this baby and she was constantly thinking about all these things that the baby would actually be saying and that's you know that led her to kind of come up with this whole idea for this uh, script which i you know i think it's kind of fun it's funny she first pitched it to disney Michael Eisner was the CEO at the time, and he said it was too sexual for them, even for their more mature Touchstone Pictures banner, which is kind of funny, um, because I don't feel like it's really a sexual film, but, you know, clearly that was an Eisner thing. It took some time for them to find it. I mean, she talked to a, a number of other studios before they finally landed on one. She was trying to get back into doing writing and directing, not just kind of directing other people's scripts. And so she found uh, at TriStar, Jeff Sagansky was the president. and He he said, uh, he greenlit the film and said she has a very quirky, offbeat comic sense. When she's free to use that on a film, she's really on firm footing. It's what she does best. Those other films really weren't her sensibilities. He's talking about Johnny Dangerously and European Vacation. She's done great work before. I wasn't chased off because she wasn't coming off a big hit. The offers are piling up knee deep now. So... I I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's funny. You look at this film, I'm like, I don't feel like it was a big chance. But clearly, studios were nervous about it, which is so strange to me. Yeah, that might be
0: one of the biggest sort of dated elements of all of this movie. That this film was controversial uh, at at the beginning, at the time, to even get made is, is fascinating. It feels so, I don't know, sanitary almost by comparison
1: today. Well, it's interesting because Heckerling, she looked back on it and she said, I pitched this idea about a woman and her baby looking for the perfect father and the baby was talking. I said, it's all from a boy's point of view, the baby, and I only would need a big star for a couple days that's a funny guy. And this was a a docu-series that she was in uh, called The 4% Film's Gender Problem. She said, I made it like it was about a talking baby played by a male comic. They insist women are not funny, so it's almost like you got to trick them. And that, more than anything, I think speaks exactly to your point about yeah. it's a fairly safe film, but they felt the idea of a romantic comedy centering on a woman who's trying to find a husband would would have been not something they could have sold. Crazy to me. However,
0: a lot has happened. A lot of proverbial water under the bridge. The yeah. thing is, like, Kirstie Alley, let's just... Let's just say Heckerling wins this round, right? She absolutely wins this round because this is Kirstie Alley's movie in its final form. It is her movie, and she's a funny, funny lady, right? She she actually performs this chaos very, very well. And I think she, um, you know, when you look at... At her experience on uh, Friends, or not Friends, on uh, Cheers, which I love very, very much. I think she was a great sort of stand-in replacement for Diane. Uh, it ended up being a, uh, a, a real lock on that show. I think she, was, she plays both a great straight woman and, uh, and a foil. And she knows, she knows comic beats. And I think you get to see her deliver them here on the big screen. I think it was terrific. Yeah, yeah I agree. So the overlap of Cheers, she did just so i I know because when did she? Th- what was this movie? Was 1990 or 89? 89, 89. That said. So this Cheers was 87 to 93. Her run as Rebecca. Yeah, she did a lot. She's done so much stuff.
1: And I think that Kirstie Alley needed a theatrical hit, right? Like she had she had done like you're right. Cheers is where she largely was coming from, but she had been in bit parts. Runaway, Summer School. I mean, we talked about her way back in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So she was doing some theatrical bits, but nothing that was a hit. And so well, it was really... I mean, come on. My name
0: is Prince, and I am Funky. My name is Prince, the one and only. I did not come to funk around, Andy. Till I get your daughter, I won't leave this town. That's right, Andy. She was actually in Prince's My Name is Prince video. What year was that? Do we now? Do we
1: need to go? as ninety two? Okay, let's see, we're talking about early. We're talking about. I'm before. just saying. I, no, I'm just saying. Right. Like you're she right. actually she,
0: became something and still chose to be in a Prince video. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the landmark <laughs> observation here. Oh, so funny! I um, I, yeah, she she struggled with her film career. Was succeeding in her, although I will say I really love Shoot to Kill, which came out the year before this, Um, but she wasn't in that many hits in films and then it was the TV that was really working, but that, I think, gave her the chance to be in Look Who's Talking, and that's what really took off, and that's probably what drove her to be in Prince. Okay, Just saying.
0: Also, his immeasurable talent maybe had something to do with that. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Let's uh, you want to t- can we just talk just briefly about the puppetry? Yeah, that it was kind of a big deal. In this. it movie. was
1: big models that they had to was. take care of here. They may look a little creepy now, particularly when it's the fetus uh, swimming around in the womb. A little uh, funky. Bruce
0: Willis. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, Todd Masters um, supervised the sequence. He was very young at the time and uh, they came up with these visual effects. They called them electronic effects. It was very puppet oriented. Because they didn't have the digital effects at the time. And so, but yeah, they create the womb, the the egg, the sperm, the zygote, the fetus, going down the birth canal, all of this sort of stuff that we get to see. Um, and it was very, very, very complicated. Um, he said the most complicated was one shot where it was Mikey playing with his placenta. It took him. Um, 115 takes to get it right. He said it required 12 puppeteers. People were hanging upside down and the shot ended up getting cut from the film. So <laughs> it was very <laughs> difficult Awful. to kind of create this whole thing. And, you know, the baby does look a little funky now, but it's the eyes, man. It's the eyes. I remember at the time thinking it looked pretty cool. So it's it's a little dated now, but I, I guess I just kind of look back on it with kind of a, a sort of fondness still.
0: All right. I'll let you. I'll let you sleep on
1: it. What was funny though, with all the effects, though, we do have a moment as I mentioned earlier where George Siegel's head explodes at, you know, when she's having yeah, one and, of like, her confetti fantasies and stuff, right? And <laughs> it's funny because Amy Heckerling, you know, they said it's a family movie. Amy didn't want it to be scary. She didn't want it to be scanners, which I just thought was very funny because we have right. talked about that on the show with heads exploding. And yes, we do have this weather balloon head of his that they did fill with confetti so it was kind of funny to watch it happen
0: i like it that that was a good a good fantasy uh and didn't that didn't feel dated at all exploding heads i think are timeless uh (laughs) let's uh let's let's come back and we'll talk about uh sequels and remakes and the budget and stuff but first we have some credits the next reel is a production of true story fm engineering by andy nelson music by funky giraffe oriole novella and eli catlin Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the numbers.com office, mojo.com imdb.com and wikipedia.org find the show at true story fm find the show at true story.fm and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews please consider doing that for this show Sequels and remakes, Andy, we have two of them. They came back two and now, and do you feel as strongly about those
1: as you do about this one? Well, and it was quick. I mean, this movie made money, and so they said, let's get a sequel going right away. Amy Heckerling came back to do Look Who's Talking 2. John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, Olympia Dukakis all returned. All three of those performers also returned for Look Who's Talking Now in 1993, although Heckerling did not return for that one. That's generally considered the weakest of the three look who's talking to people say is actually as good as the first film that's where you have mikey dealing with his sister and their friends and then look who's talking now that's where they have the talking dogs uh which i think was danny devito and diane keaton if memory serves yeah i think so so i don't actually i don't think i actually saw that one i didn't see the third one either i only saw look who's talking to yeah and i have zero memory of look who's talking to I don't remember much about it either. But it again, Roseanne and her TV show, obviously, they were once again bringing on people for these voices that had a following.
0: Well, and look who else they brought in. They bring in Gilbert Gottfried. They bring in Damon Wayans. Mel Brooks is in. I mean, they got they got a serious comedy cast. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, for a 4.7 on the IMDb scale.
1: Which is interesting because I do hear, and I again I haven't seen it since, but I, I'd be curious to revisit it just to see if it's kind of on the level of this one. Like it's yeah, it's as good as it as the first one for the era. Like now you watch it might might not work as well, but you have IMDb closed right now. I do because
0: I w- I want to do the IMDb game with you for Christie Alley. Ooh, let's do it. Yeah, so I just am curious what you think. As you know, the algorithm is wonky over at IMDb. Maybe wonky is not the word unpredictable.
1: I, I don't know how good I'm going to do on this because I really can't think of many things that she's been in. Um, I mean, I feel like it's going to be Look Who's Talking, Cheers. Ooh, what was that TV? Veronica's Closet? Was that the show that she did? I think it was Veronica's Closet. That would seemed like a popular one. And Shoot to Kill, just because I enjoy it. <laughs> well you got one. Oh, uh, yeah
0: it's luke who's talking that is uh that's the first that that is the third in the list left to right wow uh it starts with drop dead gorgeous 1999 oh, right right yeah. i kind of can't believe you didn't get number two it was recast in later movies but she was the first savik in star trek 2 the wrath yeah, of Khan.
1: i just i i her Part was so small, I didn't think that they would have, uh, that would have, would somebody have been at IMDb
0: noticed. Somebody yeah. in the algorithm noticed. Uh, and the, the last was Village of the Damned, oh, 1995, sure. as Dr. Susan oh, Verner. John Carpenter. Yeah. John Carpenter, that's right. Huh. Okay. There you go. Interesting interesting yeah. what they pick up
1: they weren't she wasn't in the tv show the the success of the first two films it was so much that uh, there was a tv show called baby talk which actually was i think the original scripted title of the film uh, it only ran for a year um scott baio was in it and tony danza was the voice of baby mikey interestingly george clooney had a small role and he has since said it was the quickest exit he ever took filming anything he's like oh no i'm out of this one um there have been talks of a reboot for the series uh in 2010 fast and furious producer neil moritz was going to reboot it with mikey now grown up and now he would be the father of the baby in the film as of uh july 2019 screen gems had announced director jeremy gerlich was writing the script for it and that i'm assuming with the pandemic. The whole thing's kind of been kind of put on hold. So who knows where they are with rebooting this particular franchise. Fast cars, smooth babies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's going to be all That's about. That's just awful. Uh-huh. Just How to do an award season? It had five wins, two other nominations. It was a very funny film. So at the American Comedy Awards, Kirstie Alley was nominated for funniest actress in a motion picture leading role, but lost to Meg Ryan for When Harry Met Sally. The BMI Film and TV Awards, David Kate actually won for his score for this film. It won uh, for the Best Film at Golden Screen in Germany. It won the Blimpy Award at the Kids' Choice Awards for Favorite Movie. It won the People's Choice Awards for Favorite Comedy Motion Picture. I don't... The Yoga Awards, it must be a Spanish thing because it won for the Worst Spanish Dubbing by Moncho (laughs) Barraco, and it was also nominated for... At the Young Artist Awards for Best Family Motion Picture Comedy, but lost to Parenthood. That's awesome. The (laughs)
0: yoga awards. Not great. Had to do with the box office, though. We kind of alluded to this at the beginning. This movie was a slammer. It was a hit.
1: Heckerling's big comedy had a budget of $7.5 million, or $15.5 million in today's dollars. The movie was released October 13, 1989, opposite Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, The Fabulous Baker Boys, one of your favorites, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and Breaking In. This movie took the number one spot handily and held it for five straight weeks. It would end up playing in theaters for 63 weeks, earning 140 million domestically and 157 million internationally for a total gross of 615 million in today's dollars. That is an incredible run for this film, which of course opened the doors for an immediate sequel and eventual third film, as we have already talked about. This ended with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 6.2 million, cracking the top 20 of AP, APPFMs on our Google Movie Budget Breakdown, which you can check if you're curious. I think. Can they still check that? Or is that it's no longer st- it, something it, no, that people can still,
0: check? No, it it absolutely still exists. And now that you mention it, because it's been so long since we referred it, I think the link might be hidden. So I'll have to fix that and make sure that you can find that link. But I'll
1: put it on the show page. Yes, you can find where our big movie budget breakdown, you can see it on there. But yeah, we haven't had one crack the top 20 in a little while, so there's the newest one.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well... I'm I'm glad we talked about the movie. I, I'm glad to have seen it again, uh, in spite of the troubles that I had with it. It's not it's not the it's not the bottom of the barrel, right? I mean, it's there's a lot the to, of the to like and appreciate about it. I I feel like I missed the most. I didn't connect with some of the most important parts, which is a letdown. Uh, but this this wraps our, our the part of our public series, and it's kind of a nice toss into our retake. I can't wait to uh, talk about that. See what that kind of show sounds like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. I mean, it was fun revisiting this one again after all these years, just to see kind of how, how it was, what worked, what didn't, and just get a read on it all over again. So I'm glad I rewatched it. And it certainly made me curious about looking at the second and third ones, although I don't think I'm going to be racing out to see them. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, Willard Huiks and Gloria Katz's 1973 film, Messiah of Evil, kicking off the next series horror debuts
0: Have you seen it? We want to know what you thought Send us your thoughts in a 30 second audio clip or a voice memo and we'll get your review in the episode Send your 30 second audio clip to reviews at truestory.fm
1: They say that nightmares are dreams perverted I've told them here it wasn't a nightmare but they don't believe me They nod and make little notes in my file not far from here there's a small town on the coast they used to call it New Bethlehem but they changed the name to Point Dune after the moon turned blood red Point Dune doesn't look any different than a thousand other neon stucco towns but what happened there what they did to me what they're doing now coming here they're waiting at the edge of the city
0: they're peering around buildings at night and they're waiting they're waiting for you
1: and they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream no one will
0: Letterboxed, Andy. Oh. How would this end up in your big
1: eight review of reviews? You know, I enjoyed this well enough. I I don't think I have huge issues. I think for the time, it was doing what it set out to do. I had a good time. Uh, you know, I I do find by the time we're getting to the end, it's you know, it's kind of standard territory. And you know, I don't know. I feel like. I don't feel like a straight up right down the middle two and a half is completely fair to it, but it certainly isn't as highly ranked as any of the others in our series. I feel like I'm going to end up at a three star and uh, you'd also give it a heart.
0: Yeah, it's troublesome uh, for me. I think I think I'm going to be right there, too, because, again, I, as you know, I feel like a three star is my new kind of minimum. Because a three star over an IMDB would be a six star, and I do think this movie is watchable, and I think it is for a lot of people that aren't me. and I don't want to say this is a, this is a terrible, boring, horrible, ill-constructed movie. It's a competent film with some good beats, and if you truck with the central conceit, I think you could really, really like this movie. So I'll give it a three star. I don't think I'm going to give it a heart. I think I'll just be a, a solid three star competent movie that I don't need to watch again. Sure. It's fine.
1: It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. All right. Yeah. Well, that will land it three stars uh, on average with a heart uh, over on our Letterboxd HQ. So, what did you think about Look Who's Talking? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over on Discord, where we will be talking this week about the movie. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
0: Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Strong opinions of this movie.
1: Oh, Strong, indeed. Strong, especially at the bottom of the barrel. There, there are a lot of people who have oh. things to say, let's just say.
0: Yours, actually, since I have the benefit of having uh, read yours, I think yours might be funnier than mine. Oh. Okay. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? I don't know. It, you want to go for it? Why don't you go ahead sure. and do it? Okay. Go
1: ahead. Mine is a one star by Mansuit, who says... If you got rid of the whole talking baby gimmick, this film would play out the exact same way. Also, this film is aged like milky, milky, milk. (laughs) (laughs) Moments of good acting, though, I'd say. (laughs) What is that? I don't know what milky, milky, milk is.
0: (laughs) Mmm, milky, milky milk. Well, I have a one star from Niall who says the first 10 to 15 minutes or so of this film is absolutely off the rails from the opening credits depicting an egg being fertilized by sperm while Bruce Willis hoots and hollers to Bruno's terrible fetus improv about autofillatio and a bevy of X-Files and Twin Peaks character actors. But it quickly loses the absolutely maniacal vibe. Once it does, it's just pretty boring. Nothing happening, rom- com, rom com with Willis just laying it out as a narrator. If it kept it the energy it starts with throughout, it could have been a wild time. But instead, it's pretty much nothing. Oh, oh my goodness. Mansuit and Nile. There's, there's, <laughs> some, there's some pretty delicious reviews on Letterboxd.
1: Good thoughts.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Letterboxd. <laughs> I feel like we need to throw in the bonus from Tavis, though. Oh, sure, go ahead. This is a one star. He says, I guess if you're a Scientologist couple, your baby's going to have an annoying inner, inner monologue voice by Bruce Willis. <laughs> 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 oh, okay. So good. okay, now, thanks, Letterboxd. You're the best. I've been podcasting since 2006.